Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the current iteration of the cynical culture wars being waged by conservative Republicans against LGBTQ kids for political gain. The current wave of anti-trans and anti-gay legislation sprouting across the country is not about protecting kids, and it is absolutely nothing new. Clips today are from At Liberty, Counterspin, Know Your Enemy, Democracy Now!, Today Explained, Doomed with Matt Bender, and with additional members-only clips from At Liberty and Know Your Enemy. To get us started, Nikita, what do you make of this surge in anti-trans legislation across the country, and where is it coming from? Yeah, so as most of the listeners will know, this is a truly horrifying surge of legislation across the entire country that is targeting some of the most vulnerable people in this country, even in places like New Hampshire and Michigan that have um, in other situations been understood as more LGBTQ friendly. And a particularly odd feature of them is that while some of them are more broadly targeting the LGBTQ plus community, um, most of them are really honing in on trans people and specifically trans youth. So yeah, the questions that we have to be asking now are like, why trans people and trans kids in particular? And why now? What's going on now? The place that I would kind of locate the start of this particular anti-trans surge is in 2015 in Houston, when there was a local ordinance that would have provided anti-discrimination protections on the basis of gender identity. And there was a campaign called the Campaign for Houston that uh, mobilized under the slogan, no men in women's bathrooms, and uh, managed to successfully prevent this ordinance from going forward. So in 2014, you have the Ferguson uprising, followed by the uprisings in Baltimore and the birth of the Black Lives Matter movement. And in 2015, you have the Supreme Court ruling that um, legalized same-sex marriage. It seemed like the religious right had sort of lost this battle of the culture war, that, um, you know, this shift away from a civil rights framing to a love is love kind of emphasis on on family, on love and emotion, things like that had been really successful in changing American attitudes about same-sex marriage. So what are they going to do? These conservative forces were looking for uh, a new wedge, a new angle, a new way to sort of push back against some of the gains that had been made by social movements around gender and sexuality and also around racial justice. And Trans people, and in particular the issue of trans folks in bathrooms, provided uh, a valuable wedge issue for a number of reasons. One, um, it uh, by focusing on a, a narrow or even smaller segment of the community that was more marginalized and has historically been marginalized even among lesbian, gay, and bisexual communities, uh, it was a way to target a demographic that was more vulnerable. It also tied into a perception that's inaccurate, that trans kids, trans young people are something new, um, that this is something that uh, is sort of like unprecedented, an unprecedented shift in ex a social experiment in uh, gender norms. And third, it tapped into fears around gender violence and locating the bathroom, the public bathroom as a particular site of uh, imagined gender violence. And if you look at the materials, the sort of promotional materials that were used in this 2015 15 campaign, um, there's this advertisement, a really just noxious 
uh, video advertisement of uh, a young white girl in a bathroom stall sort of turning around and there's this large kind of hairy, darker skinned hand reaching out towards her. Now, this fantasy has nothing to do with the reality of trans people trying to use the bathroom. Let's just be clear about that. But what it does have to do with is a long history of using white children and white girls and women in particular and their fears for safety as a political issue to uh, heighten racial inequality and the marginalization of gender and sexual minorities. So when that campaign won, uh, I believe that folks on the right, folks in the conservative movement realized that they could target trans folks and trans youth in particular as a new culture war issue. E so that even if they lost on gay marriage, even if um, they felt threatened by Black Lives Matter and some of the racial justice movements that were happening, that this was a way that the white socially conservative base who are anxious about some of these changes, in particular around gender and sexuality, could be remobilized. And in order to do that, they tapped on this very long history around this politics of protecting children. I think for a lot of people, it's like, it's like a joke, you know, that you would say that parents who support their child are abusers and parents who abandon or deny or punish them. Well, they are the healthy ones. But this is so obviously absurd and hateful that surely will nothing, nothing will come of it. That's not really proven such a successful approach. Look, it's not legally binding what Abbott and Paxton have both declared, but it is having a profound impact on our young people and their families. People in Texas, as a result of hearing uh, the remarks and the actions taken, they might be afraid to bring their trans children to a doctor now, which is in no one's best interest. Medically necessary care should be accessible and should be determined by the patient and the healthcare provider. And unfortunately, the governor and the attorney general are sending the completely opposite message. And let's talk about the actual effects that this political rhetoric is having on our young people. You know, the Trevor Project, uh, a partner of Tildes, conducted a report and they found 86% of LGBTQ young people in this country have said that recent politics have negatively impacted their well-being. There's like 195 state bills proposed in 2022 alone, and it's just March, you know. So we're wrong to say this is ridiculous. Like, we do have to engage at every level to push back against these bills, even if they're just at a low level, even if they're just maybe not going to bubble up to become actual law, they still are having an effect. You make a great point about the volume of anti-trans bills that are cropping up in state legislatures across the country. 2021 was no exception. There was a similar number of anti-trans bills introduced in state legislatures, including in the state of Texas. And it's not a mistake. It is not a coincidence. What is happening is the result of a highly coordinated effort 
by a number of opponents who would seek to harm our young people in this country. Uh, organizations like the Alliance Defending Freedom and the Heritage Foundation, Concerned Women for America, these organizations have consistently attacked LGBTQ progress in this country. And their latest and greatest straw person happens to be young people. And not only is that despicable, it's quite frankly putting some of our most vulnerable people in this country at risk. We are putting trans young people in actual risk for their safety and for their well-being. And for parents, there is an incredible amount of fear and confusion about how they can best support their children during these times. So I just want to underscore, this is not a mistake. This is not a coincidence. This is a highly coordinated effort in an attempt to derail progress in this country. And sadly, for me, from a very uh, infuriating position, the next generation is being attacked, and it's downright despicable. Are there any particular things that you would like news media to do more of, or maybe less of, in terms of their reporting on trans issues and these predations on trans people's human rights? First things first, we need to remember that these attacks are on children and their families. This isn't a trans rights issue. This is an infringement on the rights of families. And we also need to remember that when we talk about gender-affirming care, it's not some ambiguous, abstract concept. It is medically necessary, life-saving care that is backed up by every major medical association in this country. We know that when trans people of all ages have access to gender-affirming care, it enables trans people to thrive. It improves their health and well-being. And I would encourage news outlets across the country to pay attention and to look for stories that explore more deeply about the positive and lasting impacts of healthcare. Politicians should not have the final say when it comes to who should receive medical care. That is completely up to a doctor. And for media outlets, as well as those of us who consume news, we have to remain skeptical of the political theater and the distraction from politicians like Governor Abbott and the Attorney General in Texas. I hear that, and I also hear how crucial intersectionality is and how often that is missing from reporting, which tends to isolate issues and harms. You can be trans on Monday, but if you're also black, well, we're going to do that story on Thursday, right? If you have a disability, well, that's Sunday. And I really appreciated Gabriel Arkell's senior counsel at Tildev, who was reminding folks that things like organizations being allowed to use religious exemptions to deny services to LGBTQ people, that that's especially bad and differently bad for poor people and working class people because they're more likely to rely on services that wealthier people can avoid. And he also noted that, you know, if we're talking about child removal, actually genuinely taking kids out of families, well, 
that's a much more real threat for some families than for others. And and so I know you know that you can't isolate issues. And if we're talking about responses, we have to talk about intersecting those responses. And this is as true for trans youth as it is for many other folks. Absolutely. And on the matter of religious exemptions, look, in this country, we not only have civil rights protections, we also have religious exemptions as well. And both of those things have existed in this country for decades. And look, Tilbeck is a proponent and a supporter of the Equality Act, which is a piece of federal legislation that would explicitly codify gender identity and sexual orientation as protected classes. And Biden mentioned it, called it out last night. Absolutely. And we know that with this bill and also the reality of the Senate composition, this is an issue that is going to require bipartisan support. And sadly, our opponents who do not want to see this crucial piece of legislation passed have twisted very uh, long-standing and common-sense principles like religious exemptions and distorted them to derail progress and, more specifically, to derail the passage of this bill. So I would encourage listeners and particularly media outlets to delve even deeper on that particular subject because, look, our opponents are fighting tooth and nail to ensure that either progress is completely derailed or to slow it down to the fullest extent possible. And quite frankly, the trans community, but more broadly, the LGBTQ plus community, communities of color, communities of faith, would all benefit from this piece of legislation. Before we get to legislative session, one more pivot point, which was June of 2020, which was a busy month, you may remember, but there was a critical victory at the Supreme Court for LGBT rights in Bostock v. Clayton County. So these were a collection of cases in which uh, LGBT people, including a transgender woman named Amy Stevens, were fired from their jobs. And it was not up for debate whether they were fired for discriminatory reasons. Uh, What the Supreme Court was hearing was whether the discrimination they faced was prohibited by uh, Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which prohibits sex discrimination in employment. And the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is this very large conservative legal powerhouse, which, uh, you know, had a lot of its alumni stocked throughout the Trump administration, and a lot of its alumni put onto lifetime appointments on the federal bench, argued this case and lost six to three with an opinion coming from Neil Gorsuch, no no liberal ninny, writing in favor of the LGBT workers in this case and ruling in effect that laws that prohibit sex discrimination, prohibit discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. The Alliance Defending Freedom lost and definitely, I think, was not expecting it. Uh, you saw people like Harry Severino mm-hmm. uh, calling this deeply unfounded and a massive failure. You saw Senator Josh Hawley uh, calling it the end of the conservative legal movement, which I think uh, right. says a lot about how they view the conservative legal movement. If Gorsuch could use textualism to the, come to the conclusion that this protection was built into the Constitution, then it's all over. What's the point? Yeah. 
of, 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 of having this hermeneutic for interpreting the Constitution. And I, I believe, too, then it was later that summer, August of 2020, when Adrian Vermeule published his Common Good Conservatism essay in The Atlantic arguing against originalism, right? Yeah. If, the, if the rule brought us to this point, why keep following it? It's almost as if it was just a pretext to come to, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. to, come to preordained yeah. policy goals. Uh, who's to say? So, walking away from this case, the Alliance Defending Freedom and really the conservative legal movement as a whole has been deeply embarrassed. I mean, remember, they mm. stole a Supreme, you know, the conservative legal movement stole a Supreme Court seat from the yeah. nation's first black president in order to weigh the dice that they just lost on. Yeah. Um, to say nothing of, I mean, this was after the Kavanaugh fight, right? So, in 2020, so before that Supreme Court ruling, we saw 79 anti-LGBT bills introduced across the country with very few passing, I think just one or two, right? Because of that fear that people had from the North Carolina fight that was still instilled in a lot of people. Then in 2021, after they suffer that Supreme Court loss, you have over 150. So it nearly doubles. Hmm. And a number gets signed into law, including an athlete ban in Idaho and a ban on uh, updating birth certificates. And then we come to this year where we have surpassed 250 anti-LGBT bills introduced in state legislators across the country. The vast majorities are explicitly targeting uh, transgender students or transgender rights. 29 are bans on gender-affirming care, a term you're going to hear me use a lot. Gender-affirming care is uh, an oft-misunderstood area of medicine, particularly as it applies to kids. But frankly speaking, without getting too much into it, it's helpful to see it separated by age groups. So, for example, when, you know, an elementary school age kid begins wanting to identify as a girl, go to school as a girl, grow, grow their hair out, or identify as a boy or non-binary, right? They generally aren't receiving any kind of health care. They usually might experience what's called a social transition. And it's just those kinds of affects. It's maybe going by a different name at school, maybe trying out new pronouns. But generally speaking, the model that a lot of healthcare workers work with and pediatricians broadly have, have endorsed, the affirming model, speaks to sort of just giving them room to explore, especially when they're that young simply so they, they have the time to, to sort of find themselves and be sure if they want to move on to the next step. So if we're thinking in middle school, if a child's identifying as trans, they might access what are known puberty blockers. These are entirely reversible means of basically pausing the secondary sexual characteristics that children adopt during puberty. So it's really just a means of giving families even more time, right? to monitor their child's overall well-being, to give them a chance to experience life basically in this new gender, right? And then for transgender adolescents, uh, you might see what's called hormone replacement therapies. So for example, if they're seeking uh, feminizing effects, they would take estrogen as well as uh, medication to block the body's production of testosterone. Or if they're seeking masculinizing effects, if they're a transgender boy, they might seek out testosterone. And on some extremely rare occasions, older teens, 16, 17-year-olds might access gender-affirming surgery. But for the most part, that doesn't really happen. And if it does, it's usually among kids who have been consistently and persistently presenting in their identity for more than a decade. 
These are uh, endorsed by the broad mainstream of the medical community, by the American Medical Association, the American Psychological Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics. They are the result of, no kidding, a century of research. Gender-affirming care is older than antidepressants. Are you suggesting to me that those institutions know better what kids need for their health and well-being than Josh Hawley? Dare I? Um, I think... (laughs) And I lay all that out for the explicit reason that I think that when most people hear the words transgender and healthcare, they immediately leap to surgery. Right. Um, And it's important to understand that when we are talking about kids, especially young kids, they're never really accessing anything that's permanent. And the sort of older teenagers who on very rare occasions are, uh, are generally people who came out at, I mean, you know, three or four Mm-hmm. Um, and have been persistently and consistently presenting. And this healthcare is strongly evidence-based. It's also strongly individualized. It's it's not a factory. <laughs> um, it's, <laughs> it's not sort of a conveyor belt. And it's important to understand that everybody takes these decisions very seriously. Parents do. Healthcare providers do. They're making these decisions in consultation with psychologists, with psychiatrists, right. usually bringing the school along. So we've seen 29 bills just this session attempt to ban that care. That care, which, by the way, transgender kids are four times as likely to have experienced a suicide attempt as their non-transgender peers. And access to this care decreases it by as much as 70%. uh, And some studies, Uh in fact, brings it down to lower rates than their cisgender peers. So understand that this is the only method we have to treat what is really a mental health crisis amongst transgender teens. And these states are seeking to ban it. One of these already passed in Arkansas. Uh, Luckily, it is currently blocked from enforcement by a federal judge's order. And then another has been enacted in Texas, but not really through legislation. And we'll get into Texas shortly. A lot of these other bills, easily the most common one is focused on trans athletes. I think this in particular has been pitched as a easy get for politicians, uh, one that relies on a lot of assumptions about sex and gender that people have. You know, I say it it tends to be really ripe for propaganda because most people don't know a transgender person. But unfortunately, most people also don't watch women's sports. So Mm -hmm. you're lying about a black box within a black box. You're talking about people they haven't met playing sports they largely don't watch. So, of course, they're more likely to believe that trans women are out there dominating uh, athletic competitions mm-hmm. day and night when we know they're not. If you're into the idea of political change, out with the status quo and in with something new and better, or even if you've set the bar lower and you just believe in the concept of liberal democracy, where a government of a country is responsive to the will of its citizens— then you need to be interested in campaign finance reform and the new podcast from the Campaign Legal Center called Democracy Decoded is the expert explainer you need. In their six-episode limited series, host Simone Leeper speaks with experts from across the political spectrum and takes a deep dive into the forces fueling our elections, not just in our nation's capital, but at all levels of government. And the Campaign Legal Center is headed up by campaign finance expert Trevor Potter, who has been beating this drum for more than a decade, and Democracy Decoded is a product of the collective expertise of Potter and his team. That's why I'm confident that Democracy Decoded is the place to go to 
learn more about how we can use innovative ideas to build a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. Find the show at democracydecoded.org, or, of course, wherever you get your podcasts. And Chase, uh, you're an attorney in the case of Dole versus Abbott in Texas. Can you describe that case and what has happened so far? Yeah, I think we, we, we really have to understand that there is an absolute crisis um, in Texas. Families are being terrorized by Governor Abbott's completely extra-legal and impermissible directive to the Child Welfare Agency to start investigating families and threatening the general public with criminal prosecution if they do not report trans youth and their families to the Child Welfare Agencies. Uh, right now, on the ground, uh, we know that families are being investigated solely because they have transgender children. Teachers are being asked to report trans transgender children and their families to Child Welfare Authorities, and providers have cut off health care across the state. So the practical impact is catastrophic and people are suffering. We filed a lawsuit to try to block this directive. Um, we are currently in court, in state court in Austin, to try to stop the implementation of this directive at every level, and that litigation continues. But the reality is, is that this national conversation and the actions by you know the Alabama legislature, the Florida legislature, and executive officials uh, in Texas is having the effect of making it difficult, if not impossible, for trans young people to survive. Texas, Chase, are they threatening to take trans children away from their parents? They are threatening to take trans children away from their parents for the sole and exclusive purpose that their parents are loving and supporting them and providing them with medically necessary doctor-recommended health care. I cannot stress this enough. They are in coming into homes, investigating families solely because parents love their kids and are providing care consistent with the recommendations of every major medical association in the United States. And the significance of what happened on Friday, the Houston-based Texas Children's Hospital, the largest pediatric hospital in the country announcing it's stopping prescribing gender-affirming hormone therapies? They have cut off care, canceled appointments, and we're talking about life-saving, necessary care. So we have young people who are relying on this care to stabilize their health and well-being. A lot of this care is time-specific. So they are pulling young people off of care that's going to force them into their endogenous puberty. The extent of the fear and trauma is unimaginable right now, and there is very little recourse for many people. So we are fighting with everything we have to stop not only the implementation of these directives, but the fallout from them, because it's not just these large hospitals, but individual providers, because of fear of criminal prosecution, if they continue to follow their ethical obligation as doctors to treat their patients. And Chase, we only have about a minute left, but I'm wondering if you could talk about some of the legislation occurring in other states, for instance, in uh, Idaho, uh, Iowa or Utah. Yeah, I think I just want to highlight briefly that both Idaho and Alabama currently have felony bans on health care pending. So if those bills pass in Alabama, there's one vote left in, uh, in the House. In Idaho, it has to make it to the Senate. Um, these are bills that also would be similarly catastrophic for trans people. And we already have such a bill that thankfully we enjoined in Arkansas, but our litigation continues there. And of course, there's uh, dozens of bills across the country still pending. And specifically in Idaho, what you are most concerned about happening there? 
You know, I'm concerned that this bill passes and all care is cut off. And not only is it cut off, that bill would make it a felony with potential life imprisonment, not only to treat people in state, but to take someone out of state to get the treatment. What are families supposed to do? And as a parent, I simply cannot imagine what it must feel like to to, to face criminal prosecution to try to keep your kid alive. And um, how many bills like this have been introduced around the country, Chase? We are facing a context now where over 35 states have introduced bills targeting transgender young people. Thankfully, we are able to stop some of them, but we are continuing to fight to the very end of these legislative sessions because there is an aggressive push to move these quickly through state legislatures. And I really do want to talk to you about what happens in the 1970s. Um, you know, you wrote in the Washington Post about how the weaponization of white womanhood and, and also this, uh, the politics of, of protection really came into play when we were talking about, um, efforts to justify welfare cuts and restrictions on reproductive health that disproportionately impacted communities of color. And I would love to, to just hear more about what happened there. Sure. So what conservative movements found was that child protection was a really powerful rhetoric. It was, it was versatile. It could be applied to a lot of different situations and a lot of different political agendas, but it could mobilize their base by touching into that almost kind of primal instinct that many parents have to protect their children. And of course, that's, that's pretty reasonable. Like who wouldn't want to protect their children? Right. But unfortunately, this language and its political use has had really toxic, really harmful effects. And one of the key turning points in that came in 1977, where this woman named Anita Bryant, who was uh, sort of like a Christian pop star and orange juice spokeswoman, uh, decided that she was going to enter the political fray in uh, Miami Dade County, Florida when a group of gay activists had been uh, attempting to pass an anti-discrimination ordinance for the county that would have protected gay men and lesbians against discrimination. Now, um, it's important to say a word about the racial politics that are going on here. So um, in uh, early lesbian and gay movements um, often adopted the sort of paradigms and language of the Black freedom struggle and civil rights movement in order to sort of make sense of how gay men and lesbians could make political claims. Now, this is sort of a double-edged sword because on the one hand, it can create a powerful basis for solidarity across lines of difference between white gay men and lesbians and African-Americans of many sexual orientations. On the other hand, it can also take an appropriative form in which uh, white lesbian and gay activists sort of act as if they uh, have a similar kind of oppression to African-Americans when they simply don't. And um, this was one of the dynamics that was playing out in uh, Florida in 1977, where a mostly white coalition of lesbian and gay activists were using some of the civil rights rhetoric that was sort of cut and pasted from uh, Black freedom and other ethnic liberation struggles in ways that were sort of uncomfortable and inappropriate. And Anita Bryant uh, figured out a, a very strategically powerful way to uh, tap into this by using the by combining these racial tensions with the language of child protection. She started a campaign called Save Our Children and uh, argued that homosexuals because they cannot reproduce, have to recruit. 
And uh, the way that they recruit is by targeting children, by preying on children. And it was really powerful and it was really successful. It uh, The ordinance was overturned by a popular vote of a, a landslide. And it set in motion this huge backlash that I think is actually very similar to the backlash we're seeing today. What you'll find is a common theme in many of these is that these supposedly child protection oriented campaigns have disproportionate effects on communities of color. We see that with uh, welfare debates. We see that with mass incarceration policies, all these sorts of policies that even when they are supported by a multiracial constituency, have these um, very harmful effects. And so uh, so the religious right found that um, they'd sort of hit upon a really powerful formula. And that is exactly what we're seeing today from 2015 to the present. Um, we're seeing these conservative movements recognizing that by frightening people into thinking that their children are under threat, you can push a really wide range of agendas. Yeah, wow. That's an incredibly important reminder that that these attacks are so incredibly linked um, to these other issue areas that oftentimes it sounds like conservative politics are really looking at these anti-trans bills as part of a broader campaign to pass probably other harmful measures that disproportionately harm black and brown folks, that disproportionately harm poor people. The first thing you got to know about Florida's Don't Say Gay bill is that it's not actually called Don't Say Gay. No, it's the Parental Rights and Education Bill. Danielle Pryor is a reporter with 90.7 WMFE Public Radio in Orlando. She's been covering the story. The idea is that parents should have more rights um, to decide kind of what children learn uh, in classrooms. It's a big push of Governor DeSantis and Republicans here in the state of Florida. And the idea is that parents should have some say in, you know, whether kids are learning about things that are considered age appropriate or inappropriate, depending on kind of which camp you're in. So I think we've strengthened parental involvement to say, look, you're in charge. And so we're going to protect your rights to be in charge and give you some tools in which to carry that out. Turns out this isn't the first time Florida has tried to censor what schools can talk about in the classroom. We've seen bills like um, Don't Say Gay. We've seen bills like the Stop Woke Act, a bill that's also on its way to the governor's desk. And that bans critical race theory in classrooms and bans conversations about history that makes students uncomfortable, right? So if you think about, you know, teaching uh, slavery in classrooms or the civil rights movement or things like that, you would have to be very careful about how you talk about certain things and the activities that you do to teach that history so as not to make someone, quote, uncomfortable. And so we've seen bills um, here in Florida, which are all trying to kind of decide um, what kids learn, what they can discuss and what they can read in classrooms, whether that's talking about LGBTQ people or black and brown people. And what does the parental rights and education bill or or don't say gay explicitly say about, I don't know, saying gay, I guess? You know, it's so vague, Sean. It really is. It's this idea that, you know, kids in kindergarten through third grade classrooms uh, won't be able to discuss gender identity and sexuality. Hmm. 
So the bill at its core prohibits schools from discouraging or prohibiting parental notification and involvement in critical decisions that affect the student's mental, emotional, or physical well-being. But it is the clause about restrictions on teaching LGBTQ topics that's gotten the most attention. So that could mean so many different things, right? It could mean, you know, a kindergartner maybe couldn't read a book about someone having two mommies and two daddies. Or it could be, you know, a second grade classroom if they usually do, you know, one of those like family trees craft projects that will they be able to talk about their transgender brother or sister, right? When they're when they're kind of displaying their family tree proudly in the classroom. And another part is that even the older kids in middle school and high school won't be able to talk about LGBTQ content if it's considered, quote, age inappropriate. Hmm. Initially, the bill's language said that schools could not encourage discussion, but that was criticized for being way too broad. So discussion was changed to instruction. Also, the bill um, allows schools and school districts to out a child to their parent or guardian. So if a child was to talk to a teacher or counselor and say, hey, I think I might be gay or I think I might be trans, districts, unless this information would cause harm in some way to the child, are required to share that with families. But the bill sponsor did file a controversial amendment that would have essentially erased that exception. That amendment, however, was withdrawn before the vote on the bill. How much are schools and children talking about sexual orientation and gender identity in kindergarten through the third grade as it is? I would assume not much. Um, I was a high school teacher, actually, before I was uh, a journalist. And I can tell you that the only time we really talked about those issues, at least in my English classroom, is, you know, it would come up in books. So there would be gay characters. There would be trans characters Mm. in books. But other than that, not much. I mean, I could imagine like maybe a history teacher would talk about maybe like LGBTQ civil rights history, Stonewall, Harvey Milk, that sort of thing. But I can't imagine, especially in the lower grades, unless, like I said, it's in a book or maybe like in in a movie or something like that. But even then, I would assume it would be pretty rare. What does the bill say about what happens if a teacher does bring up sexual orientation or 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 gender identity in, say, a third grade classroom? What happens to that teacher? So basically, it opens the door for lawsuits, Ah. unsurprisingly. And so school districts and school boards, I think, are very nervous right now to see what will happen if a parent decides, you know what, my child, you know, like I said, read a book about gay people in class, and I'm upset about this, and now I'm going to sue the school district, sue the school board. Whether that'll be found to kind of hold water or not is uncertain at this time, but I think it's a concern, and unfortunately, it'll probably have a chilling effect on teachers when they're lesson planning. Unlike the Stop Woke Act, though, which I suppose we've been seeing stuff like that against critical race theory across the country, now Governor DeSantis and other legislators in Florida want to police conversations about queerness. And last time I checked, there are a whole lot of queer people in Florida. There are. There are. And there's even out uh, people in the state legislature, (laughs) some of whom you've seen like Carlos Guillermo Smith, who has been fighting against this don't say gay bill for for months now. There's nothing uh, inappropriate about a visibility for LGBTQ families. 
LGBTQ Floridians are a healthy and normal part of every society and of every school. And is really concerned about how this is going to affect LGBTQ kids' mental health. We know that those kids tend to have higher rates of anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation. And they also tend to have higher rates of homelessness. And so I think he's really concerned. And a lot of LGBTQ advocates in the state are really concerned about, you know, if you are telling kids that innately who they are is inappropriate and making them scared to come out (laughs) in schools. You know, uh, what is this going to do to this very, very vulnerable set of kids throughout the state? So you guys go into it and why why don't you, you know, you already spoke a little bit about it, but what was his... Like, what was his argument on this? Because this is basically just uh, the right doesn't think that trans women should uh, play in sports uh, where they are competing against people who match their gender identity. Um, That's that's their whole argument. And they believe that uh, it gives these trans women a competitive edge, even though, again, the only... In the only, uh, as far as I've researched and I've heard about this topic for many, many years on various different college uh, uh, sports, and every time they're worried about some competitive edge where, like, the trans woman ends up coming in, like, ninth, tenth, fifteenth, twentieth, uh, not even on the, the, the lineup page list. It's just, you know, this is the first time that I know of where... Uh, a trans woman has actually been able to compete with the cisgender woman in that particular sport. So, I mean, he pulled out some statistics. I don't know where they came from. I think you may have heard them in the, in the audio, like 60% of like, you know, something about like 60% of sports that transgender, like something about like they win all the time, basically. That was the argument, you know, this competitive advantage argument, which I don't think really, as you said, like bears out with a lot of scrutiny. And then furthermore, it, it's embedded in like a very, not only, um, you know, setting gender aside, a sex essentialist mindset of like, there's only two sexes there's, you know, and that everybody has to fit into one of them and that, you know, changing, doing anything to change, uh, in order to match, you know, your gender expression and quite literally potentially save people's lives, um, in terms of their psychological health, um, you know, that's, they basically want to say those people aren't women and therefore should not compete with women. I mean, they want to more or less continue to kind of like create buckets for people and then essentialize them in those buckets and say only people can play, you know, with, like with like basically. Um, and I mean, you know, they bring up arguments like, why do we have male and female sports? And I'm like, well, um, you know, I think there's a long history of reasons for that. And there's some interesting arguments around that, but their desire, when you kind of get to like what the solution is, it's not really one of inclusion. It's not like they're saying, let's create a sort of, you know, area of sports where anyone compete against anyone and actually make it about like, what's, what's human excellence or whatever, um, versus, you know, oh, we should continue to create these like subdivisions of people and we should do these really invasive sort of like 
you know, um, examinations like borderline Gattaca right. <laughs> examinations it's, in order for you to just compete. Right. It's, um, not about, it's not about like you could you could literally on that little banner he's got, you could just, uh, you know, he's got uh, women's sports in big red letters um but you could just literally it, it just wasn't like black- it wasn't olympic it was he didn't even attempt to qualify his statement of like is should it be like these super super high stakes you know money making sports where that's what it's become he made a very grand you know argument of should it be sports and i'm like man what the fuck are sports about <clears throat> like what is the point of sports and he said to win and and I thought to myself, that tells me so much about you. Yes, that tells more I mean, than that, it tells that, me about sports. That says a lot about. I'm sure if you asked a lot, I mean, like a, a very large percentage. I'm not going to put a number on it, but very large percentage of uh, people with similar ideologies to Stephen Crowder, i.e., conservatives, the right, uh, whatever you want to call uh, them, um, they probably would say the same exact thing. You know, I wanted to also ask you, do you think that the media and even advocates who are opposing uh, these measures that are opposing these attacks on on the trans community are playing a role in any way in validating the narratives that we've been talking about? Um, Mm. And if so, what do you think should be considered for media or advocates or just anyone who's talking about these issues? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And it's a complicated one because uh, it's very tempting to just want to flip the rhetoric and be like, well, you know, Greg Abbott says he's protecting children from child abuse. No, we're protecting children because we're providing them the care that they need. And that's understandable. And I wouldn't necessarily criticize it. But the problem is, again, as we've seen, so long as we're in this this discourse of protecting children, more often than not, it's going to be turned to political purposes that are not actually aligned with what we want. I would want to hear from a wide range of activists and, you know, legal workers and stuff about what's been effective in different contexts. But for myself, what I would say, I think children need less protection and more empowerment, less protection, more empowerment. So what I mean by that is if we're giving parents more rights and more power to wield, it doesn't keep their children safer. In many cases, it's quite the opposite. So an example is, this provision that thankfully didn't make it into the final version of the Florida don't say gay bill, but um, it's still in bills in Arizona and Alabama that are pending that would mandate school officials who learn about a uh, student's gender or sexual identity to disclose this to their parents. And, you know, those of us who grew up in, in, in the South and uh, in some of these settings, like know that that can be literally fatal to young people, literally fatal. So, um, so again, like, uh, uh, and similarly, like pr- protecting children from information about things like sexuality and gender doesn't keep them safe. It's directly responsible for massive amounts of harm, ranging from STIs, unplanned pregnancies, sexual violence to poor self-esteem, isolation, self-harm, like all these sorts of things. So I just think that protection is the wrong way to think about it. I think that empowerment is a much more promising way to think about how we should relate to young people and LGBTQ and trans young people in particular. And so um, part of that's a shift in sort of how we talk about it, but it's also a shift in sort of how we think about political organizing. So I want to really highlight in this moment, in the last week or two, these uh, student walkouts that have been happening in Florida that have been initiated by youth, led by youth, 
Um, and it's building off of this broader pattern of youth mobilization against um, gun violence, against racist police murders, against COVID policies that have put young people at risk. Um, so we're seeing a real surge in youth-led youth activism. And one of the things that we can be doing in addition to our work, uh, you know, challenging these bills and legislatures is really trying to highlight and uplift that youth-led organizing that recognizes youth empowerment and not just child protection as one of the things that's most likely to actually create real lasting, real lasting safety and social justice. Oh, I love that so much. Just the shift from talking about protection to empowerment and talking about autonomy and agency for young people is so important. Uh, thank you so much for that framing. Um, I think that's incredible. And, um, you know, I think just as in closing, many of our listeners care deeply about trans justice and about the issues that we've been talking about and want to find ways to get involved in fighting for trans rights and in, finding, in fighting for gender justice. Then that sort of goes against them. Like the idea then that you care so much and are spending so much time trying to litigate this issue that is not going to affect literally 99.95% of people in this country. Like, how many, how many, how many student athletes, uh, across the country are there? And how many of them are actually in a league with a transgender person? That's also, what I asked him. Right. And he couldn't answer that right. because it's, it's not actually that, like, not only do I fundamentally disagree that the premise is there is even a problem. Right. The whole premise is dumb, but even in their own, like, uh, it's not, it's not a yeah. big problem. Right. Even in it's, their own world. Right. So and, it's, and, it's absurd. And notice it's too really that they, and notice too that they always only have the problem with transgender women competing in sports with cisgender women, but there's never a problem when it's transgender men competing in men's sports because it's it's not about like it's not about that they can't really win that one like look, that's Matt, not a cultural you, war look a, a super masculine guy like crowder he would never get beaten by a trans man in sport like that's the mindset that's what they think to themselves because they that's why they don't think it's a problem because you know they don't feel threat because they're so full of themselves. And, and, <laughs> it's like and, chauvinism, right? And then there's there's that there's that um that situation where uh, his name totally I can't remember right now, but it's a very famous case where this transgender uh, man, uh, college student, was a college uh, like a collegiate wrestler and wanted to compete against men, but the league wouldn't let him. Because he was a tra he's a trans man and forced him to compete against women because that's right. how they viewed him. And he would defeat the other women while like sort of at the same time, like protesting how stupid this is. He doesn't want to face women. He wants to face other men because he's a trans man. He's a man. And conservatives would be so confused by that one because they jump in and say that that uh that person should not be competing against the women well really that doesn't fit with what you're saying for the other cases so either you think trans people should compete with 
there are other people who match their gender identity or you don't. It's not only when you're not happy with how that's going because the trans person is doing really well in whatever sport league that is. Well, I think the reality is they functionally either don't want them to compete at all or they think they can get away with arguing, oh, yeah, well, they should compete in this like third category or this fourth category, knowing well that that's a bullshit argument because like they're not going to actually support investing and creating <laughs> like those leagues and all of that stuff. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it, right. so functionally, it's the same argument. They basically just like don't care and don't want these people to compete. Um and and I think that's kind of, it's just exclusionary right. at the end of the day. That's how I view it. Right. The trans wrestler, by the way, is Mac Beggs. And he, he wanted to compete against other men and they wouldn't let him because they said he was, you know, his, his birth certificate said he was a, a, a woman, a girl. And, and um, they were unhappy with that when that's exactly what they're. Uh, the, the, the opposite is what they're unhappy with in the case with Leah Thomas. It's like they just don't want they just don't want trans people involved in anything. They want them shunned from society is really what it's all and, about. And it's 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 so strange with the like the um elevation of certain hormones or certain types of things over others. So I'm gonna look up the um the runner that I mentioned. Um okay, Castor Semenya. Right. Um so People had, you know, complained that Castor Semenya like shouldn't be able to compete. It's unfair. They're winning and winning and winning. Um, so they like forced all these tests and they did all this eugenics garbage and elevated testosterone and estrogen as like you know these molecules and these hormones above you know other functional systems like lactic acid which is why I mentioned Michael Phelps earlier. You can look at Castor Semenya and you can look at Michael Phelps and you can say, hey, these are actually, these are interesting people. They're both outliers for like reasons that it's just like natural mutation. Um, and we've got curves of distributions. And sometimes, you know, you end up having someone who not only can produce less lactic acid, but they're like super fucking tall and have like a crazy wingspan. Or you've got someone who can produce more testosterone that's a woman and can run. And frankly, I think it's kind of – there's some red flags as to why Castor was singled out and not someone like Michael Phelps. Right. Well, very obvious ones, yes. Um, Quite. Yes. Uh, <laughs> quite obvious ones right and and so that's you know why i brought up these edge cases with him to begin with because it's like you can't just cast this gigantic binary net on things you're you're gonna literally erase people and then you're going to put yourself in these stupid contradictory situations where you look ridiculous because you, you you're doing this all for the sake of like having and maintaining an exclusionary system Let me just ask you, finally, one of the things I liked about another piece I read from Gabriel Arkes was the reminder that courts, not even the Supreme Court, have the final say on an issue. The people do. And I think you've just touched on it. But if you could just say, where would you like to see people using 
their voice. It's easy to get discouraged when we see things like Governor Abbott and those statements, and it's easy to get confused about what actual impact that can have. And then even if it's not law, it still has an impact. What would you have listeners do to make their voices heard on this set of issues? I have received numerous emails and phone calls over the past several days related to developments in Texas. And I have been on the phone for many hours with our colleagues on the ground. And a lot of folks are asking, what can I do in this moment? How can I be of help when it feels like there is nothing that can be done? And I would say, pick up your phone or go on your computer and call or contact your U.S. Senator and call on them to pass the Equality Act. There is a crucial need for federal protections in this country that would not only strengthen existing civil rights laws in the United States, but would also expand them to include deeply marginalized community members. And for Tildas, and for me as a trans woman, as a trans woman of color, it matters when the president gets up in front of the world and delivers a State of the Union that calls on his colleagues in Congress to pass the Equality Act. That matters. And for listeners that are looking for one thing to do in support of trans equality, I would encourage you all to contact your U.S. Senator right now and call on them to pass the Equality Act. We've just heard clips today, starting with At Liberty connecting the current surge of anti-trans legislation to the history of using women and children as excuses to maintain oppressive systems. Counterspin explained that parents who support their children are being framed as abusers for following the medical care guidelines supported by all of the U.S. medical establishment. Know Your Enemy looked at the conservative legal strategy in the courts and the way supporting trans health improves lives and prevents suicides. Democracy Now! explained the way Texas families are being terrorized by new anti-trans laws. At Liberty highlighted the strategy of frightening parents to maintain oppression. Today Explained dove into the Don't Say Gay bill in Florida. Doomed with Matt Bender in two clips discussed the knots anti-trans conservatives tie themselves into simply to maintain a bullshit exclusionary system. At Liberty reframed the discussion from protecting children to empowering them. And Counterspin highlighted the single most powerful call to action, which is to pressure the Senate to pass the Equality Act. Links to more details on that are in our show notes. And that's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from At Liberty diving into the deep history of using women and children to uphold racial oppression. Emmett Till was a 14-year-old black child from Chicago who was in Mississippi visiting family and was brutally murdered. And um, his mother uh, had an open casket funeral and his uh, quite brutally uh, mangled body was 
became part of the visual culture of the 1950s. And it really catalyzed this huge amount of horror and shock and scrutiny about the impact of white supremacy in the South. And so it was one of those moments where this discourse of, oh, you know, well, what this violence is actually about is protecting white women began to be really challenged because it was coming into conflict with these other discourses about protecting children. And Know Your Enemy looked at the evidence that anti-trans misogyny can be a gateway to white nationalism. They feel, the white nationalists, that transphobia is an effective gateway drug into broader, more extreme viewpoints because it's treated as more acceptable uh, in broad society and is already present in mainstream conservative circles. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, this is Craig from Ohio, and I just felt compelled to weigh in on the conversation that you had with Alex from Maryland about the dynamic between the two parties and then the internal dynamic on the, in the Democratic Party, because it's something I've been agonizing over for literally decades at this point. I'm sure a lot of your listeners feel the same way, because it's a real puzzle. And the way I think about it, I just thought I would tell you my the way I look at it is that the two parties are made up of factions and they're on the left in the democratic coalition the two major factions are the what I call the, the liberals which would be the, the moderates the centrists the corporatists and then the progressives and on the right the dynamic is authoritarians and the establishment so the corporate more you know, Mitch McConnell types. But the way this uh, shakes out, and by the way, you can look at how this breaks down by numbers because the Pew Research Center does a survey of the American electorate every few years. The latest one was in November. And if you look on how they describe the various thinking of the, of the ideologies of the different voters, you'll see that on the left, liberals dominate. I mean, what you might call a typical progressive in the mold of uh, Bernie Sanders or AOC, we only make up maybe 12 to 15 percent of the Democratic electorate, whereas on the other side, on the right, the authoritarian right, so the hardcore theocrats, they make up, I think, a much, you know, almost 90 percent of that coalition. So anyways, the way, what happens then is, is this shakes out, the liberals, since they dominate not only the party, they dominate the media. So when progressives try to take a stand, they get vilified by the liberal majority, and that vilification is amplified through the media. So then the last thing I want to mention is that I totally agree with you that with the right, the threat couldn't be more profound. I actually think it's, it's an existential threat for the democracy, for the country, for the planet. So we're, as progressives, given those dynamics, we're really in a bind. I don't know what to do about it. I'm hoping we can wait and this dynamic will change. But basically, 
I agree with you. Progressives just have to accept that we are in the minority. We really can't challenge the liberal majority because they pretty much own the platform and the media and the megaphone. But we have to fight against the right because the threat coming from the right is just really unthinkable that they might gain control. So, okay, that's it. Thanks a lot for hearing me out. Bye-bye. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. First, another quick reminder that there are resources on the Equality Act linked in the show notes, so please check those out. Second, don't forget to join our growing Discord community and add your thoughts to the discussion happening there find a link in the show notes for details on how to join. And third, I have some thoughts on Craig's voicemail that we just heard about the dynamics of the parties. And the first thought I had was a very minor quibble, just that I would break up the the sort of inter-party or intra-party divisions more than Craig did. Craig sort of broke it up into like two major categories for each party. I would have said at least three for the Democrats, but I went and searched around a little bit for details on the Pew study that uh, that Craig was referencing, and NPR wrote a decent article that doesn't really editorialize much, just sort of presents the findings, and they show that the Pew Research breaks up America broadly, you know, spanning both parties and out of those parties into about nine distinct groups. And that sounds about right to me. So from the article, feel like you don't fit in either political party. Here's why from NPR. It just starts out uh, explaining that Americans are divided not just by party, but also within them, enough so for Pew to sort Americans ideologically into nine distinct categories, one more than in its last typology four years ago, with some decidedly different contours. So we, we, I guess we used to be eight categories, and now we're nine. But skipping ahead, oh, I mean, you should go read the article if you want to understand all the different types of Americans, but the paragraph or the sentence even that stuck out to me that helps explain the Democrats the best, I think, is this. Pew notes that in past typologies, it has found cracks among Democratic groups on social issues like abortion, same-sex marriage, and legalizing marijuana, but those no longer exist. Instead, now the divides are about how liberal the party should be, end quote. And now, to quibble with that, I would say that the phrase, how liberal the party should be, that phrase is doing a lot of work. And the work it is doing is describing the present-day issues that divide the Democratic Party in the same way that abortion, same-sex marriage, and legalizing marijuana used to divide the Democratic Party— but no longer does. And so just how liberal the party should be, you could use that same phrase to describe the Democrats, you know, 10 or 20 years ago when abortion, same-sex marriage, and legalizing marijuana 
were issues that divided the party. So to me, the standout lesson is not about how divided or on what the party is, or the left generally is, but that that is always going to change as particularly the social issues come you know from the progressive perspective and into the mainstream. So getting to Craig's point and, and his concerns about you know, progressives being a small minority and the liberals being the dominant group and uh, you know all of that, especially and in the media and everything, the goal shouldn't be not because it wouldn't be nice, but because it's just not going to happen and isn't a worthwhile goal, I don't think. Uh, the goal shouldn't be to change how people label themselves, meaning people who label themselves as sort of moderates or, or you know corporate liberals or whatever. We don't need them to change their labeling identity to progressive. It would be nice, but that's a goal that is uh, very unlikely to be achieved. It's akin to asking a person to change their identity, and we could go on for days about why beliefs that are tied to one's identity are the hardest to change. People don't like changing their identity. It's sort of a fundamental human thing. The goal instead, I think, should be to punch above our weight in terms of influence and move the Overton window so that moderate liberals can continue to feel perfectly comfortable in their liberal moderation while also coming to support reparations and universal health care and the Green New Deal and every other progressive issue that seems extreme today but will become common sense within the next 20 years. I mean, abortion, same-sex marriage, and marijuana legalization were all extremely contentious issues when I started producing this podcast. And I'm not even 40 years old yet, though I am getting dangerously close. So no one should feel discouraged about the ability of progressives to get their ideas into the mainstream in a relatively short period of time. A little ironically, it is exactly our impatience that helps push our ideas so far so fast. So keep being impatient publicly, but I think take private comfort in our proven track record of making progress. Not fast enough by any stretch, uh, maybe not fast enough to you know divert the worst impacts of climate change and all that. I'm, I'm sympathetic to all of those concerns, but total despair over our complete inability to make progress, I think, is wildly unwarranted. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. I would love to hear your thoughts on this or any other issue. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support through our Patreon or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through the regular podcast player. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com.